Greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman. Chapter 8, New Awakenings. When I first came to the seminary, I sincerely tried to believe and pray but any spiritual grace I found gradually dissolved in the face of continued and repeated brutality. There came a time when I rebelled against God. In spite of all my prayers for Him to come and help me, nothing happened. As I grew older, I found it more and more difficult to rely on prayers and hope for my redemption. That period in my life coincided with the creation of the Garibaldi group. Not only did we spend our time figuring out ways to attain enlightenment through breaking the rules, but we were also determined to prove ourselves in class as exceptional students. Consequently, my last three years in the seminary were devoted to the cultivation of dissidence, ego, and intellectual pursuits. I managed to do well in most of my subjects, but I was only so-so in science and poor in math. Actually, math was decipherable until the letters of the alphabet got involved. I had reserved them for literary pleasure and found them out of place in this region that belonged to numbers. So, when confronted by a mixture of letters and numbers, my mind went blank. Science was basically all right, especially the natural sciences and anatomy, but the learning process became nauseating when a frog, then a rabbit, were involved. Supposedly, these poor animals were being ripped open for our scientific education, but I could only feel their pain. My psyche shut down, and with it, every interest I ever had for anatomy. I enjoyed all my other subjects, especially reading and writing. Writing was cathartic. Through it, I escaped from the reality of institutionalized life into a world in which I seemed to have the power to regulate things. One day, we were asked to write a story, any story in which someone would occupy a position of authority and be a symbol for others to follow. The paper was due in a week. That night, something strange happened to me. It was after lights out and I was walking around in the dark, near the dormitory like a good Garibaldi, waiting for my fellows and enjoying my solitude. Suddenly, a few yards from me, I saw an old black man dragging a white priest by the hair. As he came closer, I thought I recognized Grandfather. Am I dreaming? I felt a chill of apprehension and my whole body broke out in a sweat. Grandfather dropped the white priest and walked closer, beckoning me to come to him. He was talking to me even though I could not hear him. My petrified body could not move. Grandfather beckoned more urgently. I desperately wanted to go to him but couldn't. Seeming disappointed in me, he began walking toward me, and when he was a few feet away, I realized it was not Grandfather, but Robert.
What's the matter with you, Patrice? I asked you to come here and you stand there like a dummy. I didn't know what to say. I was confused. Why did I think that Robert was my grandfather? What was that you were dragging? I inquired, eager to know what I had seen. A bench from the forum for us to sit on. It's still there where I left it. Would you tell me what's the matter with you? You look like you've seen a ghost. You bet I have. I didn't expect to see you coming from that direction. Why did you go to the forum to steal a bench? We don't need a bench to sit on. Why not? We always stand up for hours. I thought tonight we could sit down for a change. And what's this about stealing a bench? I didn't steal it. I was planning to take it back when we're done with it. Is there something wrong with you? Never mind, I said, letting the subject drop. I was afraid to tell Robert that I thought I had seen Bakai. That night, I couldn't stop thinking about him, nor could I dismiss what I had seen. It had seemed so real, yet how could I prove that I had seen Grandfather while wide awake? For days to come, Grandfather crowded my conscious life. So, when given the assignment to write a piece about a figure of authority, I wrote a play about him. In it, I depicted him as a person who possessed supernatural powers that he used to protect his community. I resurrected him into a story in which he led the whole tribe to victory against the colonial oppressor. I invented graphic details about how he personally fought the leader of the colonial army in a duel and spared his life in the end on the condition that he go away and never return to the area. I even had the French general kneel down and pray to my grandfather to spare his life and declare that the French ideology he lived by was wrong. Finally, I had the general ask grandfather's permission to study with him and learn the wisdom of the tribe. As the play ended, grandfather and the French general were initiating a new era in which tribal wisdom was taught to white people and nothing else. I had been in trouble with Father Joe in the past with this kind of subject, and I was smart enough to know that writing the play was an explicit invitation to more trouble. But some evil was working in me and I could not help it. I never knew why, but I took my chances. The war I was depicting was not against any religious authority, and I thought that would help, just in case I had to defend myself ideologically. The fascination that drew me into writing this play was deeper than I can explain. Everything in my logical mind said I was begging for a serious beating. My deep self refused to admit it. And one, Father Joe our black African priest, read the play and at first did not have anything to say. I believe he experienced a melange of fear and amazement at what I was able to do. Something told me that his deeply buried roots were shaken and his identity temporarily confused. Miraculously, Father Superior selected the play for performance at Nancy's anniversary celebration. I chose to play grandfather.
The rest of the cast consisted of members of the Garibaldi group. The rehearsals promised that the play would be great. The night of the performance, I dressed the way I remember the elders being dressed. There was no way to recreate their formal outfits with the materials on hand and the limits of my childhood memories, but with a high level of motivation, much that was missing was reconstructed. That night, the whole novitiate was invited. Visitors even came from outside of the institution, and there were more priests present than I had ever seen together in one place. There were also high local and national authorities. The play began. From the stage, it was impossible to see the audience with clarity. As I played grandfather, I felt an inexpressible sensation surge through me. I was not acting, but being. I was not Patrice, conscious of a role being played, trying to make an audience believe in a clever illusion. Instead, I felt a true merger between my person and a spirit, and it felt as though I had come home. This force moved my whole being into a timeless place in which I sensed the possibility of being captured by the soul of another. I was coming into life through my own creative work. God did not exist. I was restoring the old wisdom of the ancestors. The play ended. A roar came from the audience, mostly from the students who for a little while had been reconnected with their roots. They were responding freely to how they felt. But the response of the priests was quiet, reserved, even confused. It seemed as if they clapped their hands because none of them could guess quite clearly what the others were thinking. They stole quick glances at one another while they applauded. dressing room, Robert observed. I expect to meet Zeus before sunset tomorrow. I don't know, but I have a feeling that they got something a little more controversial than they bargained on. What do you mean? Didn't you watch them at the end of the play? Sure I did, but why should I believe the worst just because someone's face didn't light up or someone doesn't know how to clap his hands? Because that face has the power to frame your fate. And I have the obligation to do what I am asked to do to the best of my ability. Your best may be too good to be seen as best, but look, I didn't mind your play at all. I think it was very Garibaldi for you to do what you did. At certain moments, I had the clear feeling that you were explicitly attacking the pigs in the audience and not any vague, remote, and insubstantial colonial ghosts. I appreciated that because that is the real war we went out there to wage on stage. But now, I've started another war that I can't win? Is that what you mean? I'm afraid so. 
I fear that you may have tipped off these people too explicitly and now they will know where to look for us. But hell, the worst that can happen is that we will be expelled from this place, never to return. The next morning, I was called into Father Superior's office. Having a private visit with Zeus was like having a visit with thunder and lightning. When I entered, he was browsing through a row of books on a shelf. I sat down and took a look at the man beside the bookshelf. Inside his ample robe, he was slim and tall. His almost lipless face was as stiff as if it had been carved out of a rock and was waiting to be given some kind of life. His eyes were too deeply recessed to be seen. I decided I was not going to let myself be pulverized without some resistance. Father Superior finally stopped pretending to look at his books and turned toward me. What were you thinking about last night while up on that stage? I was asked to do a job and I was busy trying to do it well. That's not what I asked you. What did you say? In this office, I ask the questions and you answer. Yes, Father. Now, what were you thinking about last night? Nothing, Father. What is this ancestral crap about? I don't know, Father. Why did you write it? I was asked to write, Father. And you chose to write about paganism. Listen, we cannot tolerate any suggestion that we are here to encourage anyone to remain in ignorance and disease. You came close to creating a scandal last night. Do you realize that? He remained thoughtful for a while, his face so puckered with frowning that he looked older than his half a century. Then, for a moment, his face lightened a little. Did you have a grandfather? I think so, Father. He died shortly before I was taken away. You mean your vocation began after his death? Were you close to your grandfather? Very close, Father. Was it him you were trying to play? I I don't know, Father. I lied. Zeus was obviously uncertain as how to approach me. He was neither angry nor appreciative, but I knew he was suspicious and uncertain and that he wished he could catch me at something. When he let me go, I was unsure of why he had not accused me of being heretical or profane, but deep down I knew what was going on. I knew that Father Superior had been responsible for creating the situation that led to my play being selected for production, so ultimately, he couldn't blame me. He was, I learned later, an anthropologist who had spent his first years as a missionary in Africa, 
studying the relationship of the indigenous cultures to the divine. In an article he wrote about one tribe, he argued that the indigenous man or woman's instinctual worship of the inanimate is an indication of his or her innate longing for God. He emphasized the good being done for indigenous peoples by finally revealing the true God to them. Mm. Oh, the arrogance. Ah. (sighs) One of the central postulates of his article was that a deep craving for God can call up a warlike spirit in an indigenous man, and he attributed the surprising victories that some tribes had won over better armed colonials to that. Reader's note, I have never, as a child or as an adult, read any westernized textbook that talked about those surprising victories that some tribes had won over better armed colonial armies. We don't hear about those victories. We just hear about the conquerors. And they really won with the missionaries, not with their armies. This is how they won. Through spirit. Back to the book. He stressed that the coming of Christ. Well, let me get my reader's note together. They didn't win because their way toward God was better. They won because of their manipulation, the psychology, and the stripping away of indigenous people's connection to the Most High Creator and taking advantage of the fact that, like he described in an earlier chapter, indigenous people will not fight and attack you unless you're fighting and attacking them. So... The Europeans came in with their trinkets and their niceties, their falseness of being nice. And if you're not punching me in my face, how am I going to punch you in in your face? And they took advantage of the kindness of indigenous people. And not just African indigenous people. (sighs) Indigenous people in Australia. Indigenous people in America. Both North and South America where they weren't able to play was in Asia. But I digress. Uh, where was I? I had to take a pause. try to clean it up but that's the truth of how it feels to be descendant of people who were who some people tried to wipe out people tried to wipe out people like me there are people mm, there are spirits in this physical world that would like nothing better for someone who looks like me, who has the bloodline I have to not exist 
But the truth is, it's not their choice because no matter what they do, they are not stronger than the most high creator. And people like me are still here. And we will be forever. Just as the most high creator will be, is. Continuing, I'm going to go back to, and it just, it bothers me though, because the scientists, like this missionary who, and they attack the youth, the minds of the youth. You kidnap babies and put them in your schools and teach and then, and don't present the villagers with access to these children. Just, I'm bringing food, I'm bringing supplies and everything is beautiful and we're singing, but behind closed doors, they're getting raped and beaten and disrespected and their identities sucked out of them. And yet, and still, this man was able to write this book. And I am reading it now in 2022. He wrote this book back in the 70s or 80s. I'm sorry, because he experienced this stuff in the 70s when he was a teenager. Um... He published this book as an adult, and I am here as an adult, reading it in 2022. He has passed on to the spiritual realm now, but he did a lot of work in his life. And this book is one of the things that he produced. And people are just tired. People of all nationalities, even a lot of white people are tired of the BS because it's killing all of us. I continue. He was, I learned later, an anthropologist who had spent his first years as a missionary in Africa studying the relationship of the indigenous cultures to the divine. In an article he wrote about one tribe, he argued that the indigenous man or woman's instinctual worship of the inanimate is an indication of his or her innate longing for God. He emphasized the good being done for indigenous peoples by finally revealing the true God to them. One of the central postulates of his article was that a deep craving for God can call up a warlike spirit in an indigenous man, and he attributed the surprising victories that some tribes had won over better armed colonials to that. He stressed that the coming of Christ has reversed that savage fierceness and turned entire African tribes into humble servants of God. Perhaps Father Superior believed that I, in all my untamed rebelliousness, would make all the greater disciple when he finally conquered me but I suspected that the spirit of my grandfather was trying to precipitate me into another stage of my tumultuous life. I felt invulnerable, like a man beyond error. My heart was calm, and I felt no alarm. If the father was giving me a rope to hang myself with because he suspected me of something, I had just the opposite feeling as if he were the one getting ready to do himself in. Whatever forces were at work in me at that moment, I experienced invincibility. Regardless 
of the neutral outcome of my meeting with Father Superior, I had now fallen under constant surveillance like the rest of the Garibaldis. We were praised for our intellectual performance and dreaded for our undisciplined attitudes. One night, I was sitting in the forum with Robert, Antoine, and Francois. It was toward the end of Lent, in the middle of Holy Week. The atmosphere of the whole seminary was desolate and silent because of the imminent death of Christ. Every evening, we said the Christus factus est obedience usque ad mortem, with mournful voices, as if to convince ourselves that it could have happened differently. All this singing and wailing was a nuisance to the Garibaldi society. The seminary was awake almost all night, every night, because the priests kept a vigil. We could not gather for any length of time or get up in the middle of the night to go adventuring. We could only take advantage of the short recreational period following dinner to have our meetings. That night, we were discussing the really serious issues of life. Francois had overheard something that he said was going to have tremendous importance in our lives. We had met so he could tell us about it. I heard Father Pascal talking with Father Michael about loosening the rules here because of the end of the colonial era. You know what that means. Sorry, but no. It means that we are free. Free from what? From this religious colonialism. Isn't that great? It isn't that easy, I said. Don't you see that the conditions under which we've been living for so many years aim at imprisoning everybody? The freedom you talk about is impossible. You can't get rid of your own shadow. You, me, Father Joe, we can never be free again. For one thing, the church has obliterated our past. Now, we may as well all be Europeans, only we're the wrong color. Francois asked, challenging me. Free will, not freedom from the past. And who wants freedom from the future? Our destiny is the destiny of the civilized. In an independent country, we will get the biggest slice of the pie because we know how to play the game. Independent, meaning what, I asked. Meaning, no more references to the ancestors. It means that the literate get all the recognition. This kind of independence has tremendous implications for us. Francois, aren't you going to become a priest? I asked him. You know damn well that we're not supposed to speak about priesthood and colonialism openly. Just whose side are you on? My question is very clear. Oh, Patrice, don't be a pain. Suddenly, from out of the blue, 
Robert jumped into the conversation, taking it far away from anything like what we were speaking about. And, as for the necessity of bringing light into the darkness, in fact, the life of the Father, we all understood. Was it too late for us to change the subject? There, a few feet away and coming toward us, was Father Superior. Sharing spiritual matters, boys? No, Father, I said. Yes, Father, Robert said. No, that is... I wanted to correct the impression I had made, but I wasn't doing a very good job. Francois took over. Yes, Father Superior. That is, we were all appalled and deeply overwhelmed by the idea of death associated with Christ. This high moment is always suggestive of that awesome event that obliterated history. I mean, just think about it. A God killed by men. I was expressing my thoughts about the matter when you arrived. Leave that mystery for tomorrow. Now it's bedtime. Thank you, Father, Francois responded with sincerity. That year, on high holy days like this, the nuns and female students at the novitiate were going to join us for the resurrection mass. The novitiate was a mile or so from the seminary in a world of its own a zone we were forbidden to even think about. We knew that in that place there were girls whose fate was exactly like our own. But we hadn't seen them until now. The rules were really loosening. When the news broke, it stirred sentiments of wonder and awe within us. We were going to see real women We wondered where they were going to sit in the chapel. Everyone wanted to be able to gaze at them. Going to Mass suddenly became something that we had to prepare for seriously. We got ready to go to the church the way you do for a date. Weren't we going to meet girls? And the Garibaldis made it a rule to look impeccable. We were warned not to speak to the girls or to shake hands with them, but in our imaginations, all of that was going to happen and much, much more. The girls were our age, pretty looking but lamentably shy. They walked into the chapel, herded together, bewildered and encircled by uniformed nuns. We waited outside as they entered and took their seats upstairs. They are going to see us from the back, and we aren't going to get a look at any of them, Robert said, disappointed. Don't worry, they'll have to come down from there to go to the communion rail, I said. Then we'll get a good look. Nonetheless, we felt cheated. The resurrection mass was intense. We sang with our best voices. Each of us assumed that his princess was watching him from behind, taking note of every subtle movement. Even though we did not know anything specific about the princesses, we trusted that they were all beautiful beyond our wildest dreams. At communion time, as anticipated, they came down from the balcony and walked, one close behind the other, to the rail. We watched them. The priests at the altar watched us. Mentally, we took our pick, deciding which girl had taken notice of us during the Mass. At the end of the service, the girls exited first. Packed together as before, by the time it was our turn to go, They had disappeared forever. The Garibaldis were having another one of their nightly meetings. 
Robert was not there, and we didn't know where he had gone. He wasn't in his bed. Antoine had brought a small map of the world that he had stolen from some priest's room, probably his confessor, and we decided that we were going to locate exactly where we were on it. All I was interested in seeing was my own village. I was bitterly disappointed. There was no upper volta, let alone my village. Paul noticed that I was downcast and asked, What's eating you, man? It's all about Europe, I said, pointing to the map. Don't you realize, all we study is Europe. Where are we, anyway? I thought we were in Africa. All we get about Africa is a lot of whitewashed propaganda that tells us nothing. What if Paul was not listening? He was lost in some world in a far corner of his own psyche. Paul, I asked him, do you want to be a priest? The question woke him up. He looked around as if the trees were listening. No. What the hell is the matter with everyone, I asked. What the hell are you doing here then? I'm going to be a writer, Paul said, or at least a professor. I'm going to go to Europe and study the theater. Moliere, Racine, Shakespeare. Paul brought out a book that I had not noticed at first because he had placed it in the dog somewhere. I did not want to ask him where he had gotten it. By now I knew that the Garibaldis were good at removing other people's property. He showed it to me. It was a book of photographs of artists, black and white, sitting together in cafes in Paris in the late 40s. I was still shocked at the idea that Paul did not want to be a priest. That's nauseating. Antoine, Francois, and now you. Doesn't anyone want to be a priest? No. So? You're all hypocrites. I don't have a choice, Paul said angrily. I can go mad and become a priest, or I can stay sane and nourish my own dream. You're the one who is off the deep end, buddy. You're the one still waiting to become a priest after all that's happened to you. Wanting to be a priest doesn't mean wanting to be a European, I said. I want to be a priest as much as I want to be an African. We have people we need to help. To fight a system effectively, you have to be on the inside. What's the harm in that? I knew I wanted to be a priest, but not the kind I was being asked to be. I knew I could be one who would place dynamite in the middle of the whole system and explode it. That was what I wanted to do. I thought that, after all, our group activities were preparing us to do this kind of job together, to send the Catholic establishment to the very hell it pretended to save people from. So I was shocked when I learned that my fellow Garibaldis had different plans. How you've made it so far, I don't know, Paul said in disgust. What about you, I asked. How are you going to get out of here? Do you think that someday they'll come up to you and say, okay, now you're free to choose. You can either 
be a priest or will send you to Europe to sit in cafes in Paris, eat little cakes and scribble little notes. Paul looked at me in a very odd way. Perhaps he was trying to measure the amount of eccentricity I carried in me. So, very good. You've proven the age-old truth then. There's madness in every action. Go up, man. About this time, Robert showed up. He was sweating. Francois rushed up to him and grabbed him. Where have you been, man? You look like you've seen a ghost. Yeah, I probably did. You look pretty shitty yourself. What happened? I asked, knowing that Robert had done something he wasn't supposed to do. I went to see my girlfriend, and I ran into the priest in charge of the novitiate. A girlfriend? You went to the novitiate? Jesus Christ in hell, what's going to happen now? Paul was panicked. Calm down and listen. See, ever since I saw this girl on Easter day, I couldn't sleep. My dreams were filled with her. I had to see her, even if it was only going to be for a second. All I needed was her name. But who the hell was going to help me? That's why I decided tonight to drop by and see her for a minute. But how did you imagine you would see her? I interjected. There are almost 200 girls in that place. Trust, trust. I knew she would come. I knew that the first window I was going to knock on would be hers. I needed to see her so bad, and I would have, only I got there at the wrong moment, when the priest in charge of the novitiate was getting ready to come back here for the night. He does that every night around 11. You knew that, said Francois. He was beginning to get the picture, and it was irritating him. Robert continued. As I walked past the fence and into the novitiate, it was so dark that I didn't notice anything at first. I located the girl's dorm and was just about to do the impossible when I heard the sound of urine falling onto the ground. That damn priest was pissing next to a tree. No wonder I didn't see him. Where he was, it was a lot darker. Who is it, he roared. I took two steps backward. I knew I had been caught, and I was thinking very fast. The priest repeated his question. I was so scared, I decided I was going to run, and so I did. Suspending his relief, the man ran after me. He moved so swiftly that there was no way I could outrun him, so I stopped and turned around. Father Simon, is that you? Who are you? He said. He was now convinced that he had me in his hands. It's me, Robert. What are you doing out here at night? Father, oh, Father, I am so glad it's you. I was going to the latrine to relieve myself. I have diarrhea, and I haven't been able to sleep since lights out. On my third round to the latrine, I heard a noise down there. See that light in the form area? There have been so many thefts in the past couple of months that I thought it was a bunch of thieves sharing what they had stolen. I decided to go do something about it, but I couldn't go straight there. They would have heard me long before I got there. So, I decided I'd take a detour through the woods. When I got there, I heard the noise you were making, and I thought the whole area was infested by thieves. When you asked me who I was, I wasn't sure it was you until you spoke the second time. Father Simon looked at the light where I had pointed and said, Gee, Robert, I think you're right. 
Let's go find out who's down there. Just stay behind me. We crawled together through the tall grass and the trees. When we were near the light, he told me to hide behind a tree while he went to take a look. He came back and said, Oh, mon pauvre, mon pauvre, Robert, it's only your teachers playing chess in the forum. Go back to sleep, and next time, don't take that kind of risk. You could be killed. Thank you, father, I said. I went to the dorm and lay down for a while because I still couldn't believe I'd escaped. You're the craziest guy, Baldy, I said, feeling my heart pounding inside my chest as if trying to warn me of an impending danger. Why would anyone put himself at such risk? Robert sighed. The world is calling me, he said. It says, Robert, Robert, you've suffered long enough. Besides, Patrice, I don't think I can live any longer without a woman. confession, Antoine jumped in. The only reason I look forward to Christmas and Easter is because I know I'll see the girls. I feel guilty, but at least I look forward to the mass. From his pocket, he pulled out a crumpled picture of a naked woman. He had gotten it from the cooks and been hiding it until now. To my dismay, I was discovering that All of the Garibaldis had the same intention, to leave the seminary at the first opportunity. I began to wonder why I had been hanging on to the need to become a priest. I must be crazy, I thought, but I had wanted to be a priest all along, as far back as I could remember. Antoine looked at me intently and I felt as if he had read my thoughts. Aren't you curious about what it's like to be inside a woman? I have no desire to inflict the pain of sex on anyone, I said. It stunned me to suddenly realize the extent to which my religious experience had molded my psyche on the issue of male-female relations. Without knowing it, I had come to see women as both attractive and repulsive. This attitude had begun with the endless homilies on hell, Satan, and most vividly on mortal sins fed to me by the Jesuits. From the minute I entered my teens, I began to hear that women had the doors to hell built into their bodies. Even thinking about them could endanger our souls. I could concede that thinking about them was dangerous in light of the events that transpired in the Garden of Eden so long ago. After all, wasn't it woman who had first tempted man to sin? I also understood that woman was born punished since her body poured blood every month and she gave birth amid incredible pain. But why women were so cursed? was as difficult for me to comprehend as their total absence from our lives. To even think sexual thoughts was to invite damnation since we were taught 
that there was no difference between thoughts and deeds. In such an unbalanced context, sex was presented as a sin as wicked as suicide or murder. The specter of sexuality became a nightmare in the quiet of my spiritual life. As I traversed puberty, the topic became laden with terror. My normal hormonal disturbances seemed like the very devil invading every part of my being, and I felt like a frail leaf adrift on the shores of hell. Thus, over the last 15 years, the association of sex with death and hell had surreptitiously taken a grip on me, and to me, what Robert had done was beyond the daring of even the most insane mind. He was the most active of the Garibaldis and the most unpredictable. How he had managed to survive so many years of brainwashing on sexuality to respond to the imperative of seeing a princess in the forbidden land, I could never fathom. After Robert's adventure, sex became a regular topic among the Garibaldis. Once, while we were arguing in the forum during siesta, Father Michael approached us. After his skirmish, skirmish several years ago with Father Superior, we had expected him to leave. Instead, his influence continued to be felt in the most flagrant way. He was known among his colleagues as the one who spied for the students and helped them break the rules. Father Michael knew what the other priests thought of him. He had discussed it with us several times, and our general impression was that he did not care what people said about him. When he arrived, our talk died. He greeted us. Hello there. What's on today? Our response to these friendly overtures was invariably deferential and cautious, even though we knew that Father Michael was more trustworthy than anyone else. Our caution today stemmed from the subject matter of our conversation, the wrinkled, nude female image that Antoine had gotten from the cooks. To carry around a picture like that in a seminary was the worst crime one could possibly think of committing and we all found the battered photograph attractive and frightening. I was drawn to it because I wanted to take a good look at the anatomy of the keeper of the gateway to hell. I had a strong yet vague sense of the relationship of beauty to evil. If hell were to recruit likely candidates, it had to construct a presentation of itself that contradicted its nature. And so, it seemed to me it was logical that a naked woman should look so beautiful. Father Michael had taken a keen flair for uncovering the hidden. He could detect the presence of something important behind our heavy silence, and this instinct invited him to investigate. Politics? Literature? Art? He queried. No one answered. We were busy trying to act normal while our minds were still locked onto the very subject his shrewdness was going to guide him toward. Sex? This time he hid it. Antoine, who had introduced the subject in the first place with his nude photograph, photograph, jumped right in, obviously feeling responsible. Uh, we've just learned that countries in Africa are being freed. Yes, that's true. But 
This isn't what you've been talking about. I'll bet it's sex, right? Women, capitulated Antoine. Love, Francois corrected. I felt that I too should say something along that line to provide a general impression of unity and credibility. Father, do people really like sex? It's not always that bad, is it? Antoine asked, relieved. We were all relieved from the anxiety of being caught with our hands in the cookie jar. Father Michael undertook to give us a little sex education. It can be an act of choice, he said. It's like a supplement to the fire of love that two people maintain for each other. Without sex, there is a certain sense of incompleteness and unfulfillment. One consummates love by making love. I don't mean make in the sense of manufacturing something, but in the sense of, but why is there so much danger associated with sex? I ask this because I hope for a refutation of what Father Remy had told us for so long, that women are the doors to hell. The dangers are more symbolic than real. See, when God commanded humans to reproduce, he did not warn them that the particulars of reproduction could be undermined by the danger of going to hell. We, for example, are an institution that does not encourage reproductive thinking. Chastity is one of the promises we must make as part of our vocation. This has nothing to do with believing that we must hate women or think of them as evil. There is no hell in the body of a woman. Beauty is not hell. The truth of what he said had a demystifying power over the teaching we had all received, but his views of celibacy implied a profound contradiction. Here was an ideal that said a priest could go to heaven only if he first placed an anathema on sexual relations. No one knew what to say. After a while, Francois changed the subject. Father, are they going to let you remain a priest? I don't know. Once a priest, always a priest. So, the business isn't about letting me remain a priest, but what to do with the kind of priest they've got in me. Are you leaving, Father? Yes, someday, like everyone else. of the seminary was the festival of processions called Fête Dieu, which coincided with the coming of spring. This festival was preceded by a day of drawing and painting on the surface of the processional path. About a kilometer long, the path was divided into as many parts as there were classes, and each class had to demonstrate its dexterity at making its part of the processional route looked the most beautiful. We drew stars and angels and geometric patterns taken mostly from history books and our imaginations. And we brought flowers from all over the seminary to cover the ground. At the end of the day, the processional pathway looked as celestial as if God himself were going to descend the next morning and walk on its beauty with us. Sometimes, at night, 
it would rain and most of the paintings would be washed away but when the whole pathway survived the night it was great to be able to walk on it hand in hand singing Gloria Timi Domine saying the mass outdoors in good weather provided greater distractions and more signs of the divine presence than saying it indoors the year the Garibaldis were born we had a confrontation with Father Superior over the content of our contribution to the processional path. Toward the end of the day we had spent decorating, Zeus decided to inspect the masterpieces of the different classes, something he seldom did. Unfortunately for us, our group had decided to work a few innovations into the traditional patterns by providing some discreet, non-religious representations. I, in particular, was bitten by this bug. Drawing from my previous experience at encoding African tradition into drama, I had painted a village medicine man at work, commanding the natural order to interact with him. Old and bearded, he stood in the midst of trees and birds. In one hand, he held a staff, and his other was stretched out like Moses commanding the waters of the Red Sea to split. Excited by this, I drew another medicine man performing a healing ceremony on a person more wretched than the paralytic that Jesus healed in the Bible. Then I wrote in golden letters, God is in every man. There were a lot of other drawings in our section of the procession itinerary, and it was not easy to determine whether any one of them was inspired by paganism or Christianity. None of them was meant to do anything other than sincerely beautify the processional path, and mine intended to include thematic diversity. When Zeus passed by on his inspection tour and saw what we had done, he went into a frenzy of anger. At the spiritual lecture that night, he announced that there would be no general recreational time for us and that we would not get to see the Charlie Chaplin movie Chariot. He also declared that there could not be a procession this year because God would be very insulted. Some of us had taken their own creative freedom out of bounds and desacralized the entire processional path. At this, Robert raised his hand. What do you want? Zeus roared. I just want to know how desacralized the entire processional space is because I want to see if there isn't a way to save it by performing a little editing. It's very bad, and you contributed to it. The worst spot was that assigned to your older students. You really botched it up. I just don't think... We deserve to be punished like this. The truth is, there's nothing more to be said. The punishment stands. That night, we ate in silence, even though we were permitted to speak to each other. After dinner, we decided that since we were in charge of the mass, at least as far as the music went, we were not going to sing songs of grace and joy, but the kind of dismal songs we sang during Lent and Holy Week. Our silence drew everybody's attention. Zeus, who thought he could get away with his punishment, found out he was dealing with individuals who felt deeply wronged. But he sustained his verdict, 
and we maintained our silent resentment. The next day, the Mass was a ritual morning addressed to the Divine. We sang, Christ, Son of the Father, who came to earth to save those who were lost, see the depth of our misery, grant us your pity. In place of a celebratory Kyrie, we sang the Kyrie Memorial for the Dead, and our voices rose with unmistakable sincerity toward a God whom we took as our witness to the misery we suffered. Father Michael was in a good mood all through the service. Father Joe looked confused, as if he did not know which day it was or which gospel text to preach from. The worst phase was that of Father Superior. Fried into crust, it expressed immense pain and subdued will. He had tried to punish us, and we were appealing to God. His God. He could not interfere with that. If he did, we would say he did not want us to pray or to speak to the divine. The whole purpose of a seminarian is to express his feelings sincerely and honestly to God any time. Father Superior was the first to insist on that. What we sang, we felt, and Father Superior knew very well why we were singing mournful songs. God was in the middle of our conflict with leadership. This was good for us. During communion, we sang, The people who dwelt in the dark shall arise. The people who slept in death shall awake, for here cometh Jesus. Everything else went on as if it were a celebration day. After the Mass, we spent the day in quiet, whispering to each other when we had to communicate. In the evening, at the spiritual lecture, Zeus, departing from the norm, actually apologized to us. I know you all feel resentful about what happened in the last 24 hours. I am only a human being with the responsibility of a large family and I must try to do my best to ensure that everything is in order. If you are directing your protest toward me as a person, here I am. But if your protests is against the higher authority for which I work, I am unable to meet your needs. The bishop will have to decide on that. It was so touching to hear Zeus appear defeated for the first time that we lost the wit to speak. Something in the rigidity of the rhythm of our lives had cracked. I didn't quite know what it was, and I didn't know how long it would be before it took effect or how it would express itself, but something had changed. From then on, students were bolder, more daring in their defiance of regulations. It was this new climate of change that brought about my downfall. Joe was giving us our weekly French dictation, the dictée. There was nothing very special about this, yet for the Garibaldis, competitive in every area, nothing regarding the French language was to be taken lightly. I had proven myself in textual analysis, but I was never able to spell correctly, so I never did well in dictation. 
and Robert and Francois were always ahead of me. That week, I decided to even the score by intensifying my studies. I had four different practice dictations read to me by Antoine. That Monday, I was ready for battle. Everything went well until the last 15 minutes when we were supposed to proofread our work for misspellings and grammatical errors. Father Joe was walking up and down the aisle of the classroom, glancing here and there at the texts. He stood next to me, reading my dictation for a time that seemed infinite. It irked me to have someone peering over my shoulder. I could not concentrate, nor could I tell him to get away from me because I wasn't able to work while he stood there. I tried to ignore him, but my blood was too hot for that. I could only pretend to read my dictee. As if to confirm my suspicion that he was spying on my work, he pointed at a word two lines before the end of the text. I looked at the word, and yes, it was misspelled. Instinctively, I started to correct it. Father Joe knocked my hand off the paper, and my pen went flying. Bewildered at the violence of his gesture, I thought he had been accidentally pushed by someone, but when I looked up and our eyes met, his were red with anger and resentment. That made me even angrier. I bent down and picked up my pen to correct the misspelled word. As I was about to do so, he pushed my hand away again. I felt deeply wronged, helpless, and alone. Why? I asked out loud. I found it. You did not. But this is correction time. It doesn't make any difference. You did not find the word. I did. You can't correct it. Suddenly, my mind went blank. I felt weak all over. Tears began to stream out of my eyes. But why, I implored. Why shouldn't I verify my text like everybody else? Nobody said you could not. I felt I could not argue, torn by a mixture of anger, weakness, shame, injustice, and God knows what else, I went numb. A big lump surged up in my throat, blocking my every word. At that point, nothing that happened could atone for the injustice, I felt. I grabbed the notebook and flung it on the floor, saying, Take it then, since it has become yours. Father Joe picked up the notebook and brought it back to my desk. I pushed it away. He pushed it back. I pushed it harder. He slapped me and said, You undisciplined brat. You fail at this exercise. I stopped breathing. I had been struck, insulted in front of the whole class, I, a 20-year-old grown-up, member of the Garibaldi group. No one in the higher division was ever hit. 
that punishment ceased after we reached the higher division. It meant that I was going to be the laughing stock of the class and probably of the entire division until someone else took my place as a victim. Something in me switched into a war mode. I shoved Father Joe, saying, You could never dream of having a son like me. You have no right to hit me. Speaking gave me more strength and boldness. The priest stared at me, dumbfounded. I shoved him again. He slapped me hard across the face, and I saw stars twinkling in the middle of the day. Crying, I bent my head and rammed it into his belly. He emitted an uh sound at the impact. I moved back and stood on the defensive. I will allow no one to hit me without reason, I said, feeling stronger and stronger as if I were avenging years and years of silent submission. Father Joe swung at me again, but I ducked. He got carried away by his own momentum and lost his balance. I took that opportunity to run to the front of the classroom. He came after me. I was able to fend off another blow, but this time he grabbed me. I resisted and we fought. We were close to the window, and his every movement seemed to edge us closer to it. I managed to land a couple of blows on his ribs while he pounded my back. I grabbed his leg. While he struggled for balance, I pushed him hard. He crashed against the window, which shattered as he yelled and went through it backwards. I felt for a few seconds like jumping through the window to continue the battle outside, but I slowly became aware that the entire class had leaped to its feet in horror over what had happened. It was then I realized I had made a terrible mistake. Thank you.